Welcome to another episode of the Loop Ventures Brain Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Clinton. Today we have Gaurav Sharma from the Patel Institute. Gaurav won the 2016 BCI Award for Best Brain Computer Interface, also known as Brain Machine Interface, which we've talked about before. His project focused on regeneration of movement for paralyzed limbs. We talked about that and how plasticity impacts the use of brain computer interfaces. And with that, here's Gaurav Sharma. All right, Gaurav, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So on the show, we always like to start at the beginning of your career, and we'd love to hear about what sparked your initial interest in medicine and neuroscience in particular. Sure. I have to say it has been a very interesting journey for me. It has taken many turns. Uh, I'm actually a mechanical engineer by training. I did my bachelor's in mechanical engineering in India, and then I came to this country to do PhD, and my interest was in robotics, of all things. I wanted to make industrial robots. So I joined the university. I went to a professor, and I told him that I want to work with you because you're working in robotics. And he told me that he doesn't have any funding for robotics, but how about bio-nanorobotics? And I have to be honest, I didn't know what that meant really, but it sounded so cool to me, and I said, yes, I'll do it. Little did I know at that time, it was more of uh, protein and DNA engineering than your traditional robotics, but it was very exciting. So what I did in my PhD at the time was how to convert these tiny proteins and DNA and macromolecules into something that is uh, stimuli responsive, can change conformation and can do work or act as actuators or tiny machines at the nanoscale. So I did a lot of protein engineering in my PhD both computational as well as experimental work with cells and all to express these proteins. And what we created during my PhD was this protein-based bio-nano devices that can change their conformation by an external stimuli. In that case, just the acidity of the solution that they are in and can perform useful work and can act as actuators or tiny machine components. So that was my initiation in the field of biology coming from mechanical engineering, what is a steep learning curve, for me at that time. So by the time I finished my PhD, I was totally into the field of bio nano and I wanted to do more in this. But my focus was on how can I apply my engineering skills and the things that I've learned in my PhD to solve medical problems. And I decided that at the time that I will pursue a postdoc. I went to California at Stanford Burnham Medical Research Institute for a postdoc as an engineer in a purely cancer research-oriented institute. And my project there was to engineer nanoparticles that are functionalized with proteins for cancer drug delivery. So that's how I got from engineering and nanotechnology to an application of engineering in the medicine world. I worked on a very, very interesting project at the time for cancer drug delivery and the goal there was that instead of targeting cancer cells with drugs that are highly toxic, can we actually re-engineer the tumor microenvironment by targeting other cell types for which we may not need that kind of toxic drug, but by targeting those cells, we can cut the supply of oxygen and nutrients to the tumor cells and make them more vulnerable to your traditional cancer therapies. 
But those cells that we targeted were macrophages, and the challenge there was that the macrophages are not only in the tumor, but they are everywhere in the body. So how do we selectively target the tumor macrophages? So that's where I brought in my engineering expertise, make nanoparticles of different shapes, like a football or an M&M candy and disc. And we found that macrophages react very differently to the shape of the nanoparticle. And we used that functionality and some functionalization of nanoparticles to specifically target nanoparticles to the tumor macrophages and to kill them and show that it can have an enhanced effect on tumor therapy. So that was done in animal models, in a breast cancer animal model. So when I finished my PhD, I joined Battelle. Again, I wanted to continue working in the field of nanodrug delivery, but this time the focus was on the brain. Brain was challenging because there are so many drugs that are known for the disorders of the brain, but very little of that can pass the blood-brain barrier and get to the brain. So the goal there was, can we use nanotechnology-enabled capabilities or functionalities to deliver these drugs to the brain? It was while working on that project for nano delivery to brain that I got more and more interested in the area of brain and neurotechnology. And this is where I am working in the neurotechnology now and neuromodulation. It's a great background. I think sometimes when we see people working in medicine with different non-traditional disciplines like mechanical engineering, sometimes the solutions you come up with are more novel. So it sounds like that's been the case so far in your career. I certainly agree. I think just this multidisciplinary approach to research brings these fresh ideas and perspectives that many traditional researchers might not think that even possible. And many of the times these ideas are very simple. You know, for example, my research on changing the shape of the nanoparticles was influenced by what the biologists have found, how these macrophages interact with bacteria, which are of many, many different shapes. So it was known that macrophages have a different kind of interaction based on the shape of the bacteria. And that's how some of these infections and all take place. And so we just built on this simple idea to create new nanoparticles of different shapes. Yeah, I completely agree. I've seen this all throughout my career, this fresh perspective can be really helpful and can really advance science at a much you know, rapid pace. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump into some of the research you're doing on the brain now. That's the thing we focus most on this podcast. So we know that in 2016, you won the BCI award for the most innovative BCI project at the time. So congratulations. Thank you. And so that project was focused on regaining movement to upper limbs in paralyzed patients. So could you tell us a little bit about what were the mechanisms you used to achieve what you did for that project? Sure. So that project and the award that we won, it's almost like a six years effort that, you know, we've been working in this field on that project at Battelle for almost six years now. And difficult problem, because that's what we like to do at Battelle. You know, we are a nonprofit charitable research organization based in Columbus, Ohio. We've been around 90 years and the mission is very simple to use advances in science and technology for societal benefits. So we recognize neurotechnology as an upcoming field with huge potential six years back. And we decided that we would like to do something in there, something that we can stray through to our mission of developing technology that can help someone, but also solve an important problem. And the problem that we picked at that time was, can we reanimate the limb of a paralyzed person using signals recorded from within his brain? So in essence, we are bypassing the injury of the nervous system, which has never been shown before, that you can record signals from your brain and, you know, reactivate your own hand to do functional tasks. So this technology has three components. The first component is obviously the brain-computer interface. It's an implant, really small, four millimeter by four millimeter 
It's implanted in the motor cortex of our patient. He had a spinal cord injury, completely paralyzed, chest down. He has no control over his hand, has some residual shoulder movement. So we implanted this chip in his motor cortex and we record his brain activity as he's thinking about moving his hand. So we record that brain activity and then we develop these custom-made decoding algorithms based on machine learning to decode what our participant is thinking about. And we decode his activity, whether he's thinking about moving his index finger, whether he's thinking about opening his hand or closing his hand or moving his wrist. We decode his intent and then we re-encode those decoded signals back into electrical pulses that are sent to his hand or his forearm with a completely non-invasive transcutaneous electrical stimulation sleeve that is wrapped around his hand to stimulate the muscles to evoke the movement that he's thinking about. We bypass the nervous system injury and everything has to be done in real time from the moment he thinks about moving his hand, the decoding signal processing to the stimulation of his hand to evoke the movement. So that's an essence of this technology. That's great. And would the same mechanism work for restoring motion to the lower limbs as well? Or are there different mechanisms that would come into play there? So lower limb is at a very high level. You would expect that what we are doing is functional electrical stimulation that is controlled by your brain activity. And we are activating the muscles to activate the limb and create movement. So on a conceptual level, yes, it should work. However, lower limb is different from upper limb in many regards. Upper limb, the focus is on giving the patient fine motor control, control of his hand and fingers and functional graphs and things like that. But in the lower limb, the problem becomes a little bit more challenging because the person does not only have to control his leg movement, but he has to also support his own weight, which is not so much of a problem in your hand, Mm -hmm. right? If you have a shoulder movement, you can move your hand. And that weight bearing aspect makes this problem a little bit more challenging. And the second challenging aspect, which is not there in your hand control, is that when you walk, it's not just you're moving your legs. It's the coordination between your two legs, right? It's a rhythmic movement. It is believed in the scientific community that this rhythmic movement, like walking or brushing your teeth or swimming, they actually originate in the brain, but they are controlled by a very specific group of neurons in your spinal cord called central pattern generator that control this rhythmicity. So... For the lower limb, there are two other challenges, the weight-bearing aspect and control of this rhythmic movement that in addition to the functional electrical stimulation, it's a little different from what we do in the hand. But conceptually, yes, if you can have, for example, an exoskeleton to support the weight and a mathematical model of the central pattern generator neurons in your computational algorithm, you can do that. I think it's possible to do that. Yeah, the weight support is a really interesting practical problem, I think, to solve, even though the function, it sounds like, would be somewhat similar, the application of it. It's funny how those problems, I think, arise. You don't think about them maybe at the time, but until you try to implement a solution. Absolutely. You know, it's a little different, the lower limb from upper limb, because you're not controlling fine movement, right? Like individual fingers. You want to just move your knee and your lower leg. So from that aspect, the problem is a little simpler, but then you have this weight-bearing aspect and the rhythmic motion aspect that makes it a little bit more challenging. (laughs) 
You know, I'd love to ask you a question that ties back to an earlier guest we had on the podcast. We had Michael Merzenich on a few weeks ago, and he talked about his work in plasticity. And so as you implemented that solution using BCI to restore motion to limbs and had patients thinking about how they should move their body parts, did you notice any interaction in terms of plasticity where things were maybe restored to function or anything in the brain that sort of adapted to what you were having them do for your application? Absolutely. That's a great question. And that's something that we were very surprised when we started seeing those things. As you know, after any nervous system injury, there is a lot of reorganization or plasticity that is constantly happening in the brain. Our participant who has spinal cord injury and he was four years beyond his injury had not used his hand for four years. And then we plugged into his brain with this brain computer interface, started recording his activity. In the beginning, it was difficult for him. It was like a little baby learning to use his hand all over again, right? And that's what he has to do. He has not used that part of the brain for four years now. And then we are plugged in there in the motor cortex and asking him to think about naturally moving his hand. And so it was difficult. He had to really focus really hard, drone out everything that was going around and just focus on that one movement. And it took him a number of sessions to even do one simple hand open and hand close. And now... Our participant can do multiple movements, seven to eight different kind of movements, individual finger or grasp in a span of three hours. And so we are three years beyond that initial point now. And so we believe that there is a learning that has happened with our participant. We have improved our algorithm. So we have made our algorithm better interpret his brain signal. But at the same time, he has also learned how to use that system and those handful of neurons that we are recording from and train those neurons to respond to his command. And that is a sense of neuroplasticity that we have seen happening. Obviously, we don't have a quantitative way of thing. It's all qualitative observation that we have seen with respect to his performance improvement and things like that. But I think that's true. There's a lot of plasticity that happens just by using the system. That's amazing. And do you think that using BCI in some way to enhance plasticity may have application beyond regaining lost function? I mean, do you think we could create even novel function in the brain if we think about maybe more of a futuristic use of it? Yeah. And I think it's not just futuristic. I think it's already happening. You know, I think it's possible. And one of the most promising area that I think where the BCI and plasticity will interact is in the enhancement of cognitive skills and learning. Can you use brain-computer interface and neuromodulation to boost brain function, to help someone learn a new language or focus better to improve your sports skills? And the idea there is very simple. You know, can we synchronize neuromodulation with skill acquisition and training to strengthen those neuronal connections to promote plasticity? And I know many groups are working in that area. I know the DARPA, the funding agency, have been very active in that area. So I already see that happening. And the evidence is there. Not in this field, but the evidence comes from medicine, you know, from stroke rehab, for example, where researchers found that if you synchronize your therapy, such as functional electrical stimulation, with the intent from the participant to move, they see a multiplicative effect on therapy. So there is this plasticity that is happening when you think about something and then you deliver your therapy at the same time. It leads to enhanced recovery and, you know, regaining of function. And as you see these projects that are sort of working on those additional BCI-related functions, how far away do you think we are from seeing, let's call it an FDA-approved sort of implantable brain-computer interface that's used 
regularly, whether it's for medical purposes or beyond medical purposes? Well, I can't give you a time frame. I think the scientific community in general had made tremendous advancements over the last decade or so. But there are still some big hurdles that need to be overcome before you can actually see people with BCIs in their home, right? And some of these hurdles are signal degradation. When you put an implant in your brain, the brain immune system thinks of that as a foreign object in the tissue and mounts an immune response against it, which leads to signal degradation. So the lifespan of that brain-computer interface is not very long. Four years, five years, I think is the most that I have seen. Now, if you want to send someone home with a brain-computer interface, you would like to have that person using that for a longer period of time, if not for his entire lifetime. So there needs to be some advancement in that aspect. The other thing is a lot of these components that we use, you know, the brain-computer interface might be tiny, but all the back end where the processing is done, those equipment are still very bulky. You would like to miniaturize those equipment and make them portable so that someone can be mobile with them. You don't want a table full of boxes, a person carrying equipment like that with him in his everyday life. There needs to be some improvement and technology improvement that needs to happen on that front. Another big challenge is on the algorithm and decoding side. You know, there is right now a lot of daily retraining that has to be done on these decoders just because a brain is so plastic and there is a non-stationarity in our brain signals. One neuron that might be firing today to control your index finger may be just silent tomorrow and another neuron might pick up. And because of that, we have to retrain our decoding algorithm. So there is a need to enhance that capability as well before these technologies can actually go from the bench to bedside and actually people using it in their daily lives. That's funny. It seems like plasticity can work for or against us, as it were, in, in that case. Absolutely. That's the beauty of the brain, right? There's just so little that we know about it. We want to exploit that, but we also know that we have to be careful with that. Mm -hmm. Well, Gar, we have two last questions. One, I just wanted to tie sort of the nano delivery of drugs that you've worked on in the past to your work in brain-computer interface. And you mentioned some mechanisms where I think you've discovered ways to have less of a negative impact through pharmaceuticals. But I'm curious how the BCI technology might help, whether it eliminates pharmaceuticals completely or maybe helps have those drugs more safely deliver what it is we're trying to fix for brain disorders? I'm not sure if brain-computer interface as where we are now with respect to the technology can eliminate pharmaceuticals completely. But even if we can do a little to improve the efficacy of these drugs that are being delivered to the brain by using neuromodulation strategies, that would be a huge, huge benefit. As I mentioned earlier, there are drugs that are known for treating brain disorders, but getting them to the brain past the blood-brain barrier is a huge challenge. Nanoparticle-enabled technologies can help a little bit to overcome that challenge, but if you can couple that with some neuromodulation strategies such as transcranial stimulation to temporarily disrupt the blood-brain barrier so that you can slip the drug through, I think that can have a multiplicative effect on the efficacy of these drugs and therapies that are being delivered to the brain. And it's just not that. If you look into the future, I think where the future might go is that you can use those nanoparticles not just as a drug delivery vehicle, but as a theranostic agent, right? They go through your blood-brain barrier, they deliver the drug, and then they stay there for some time to act as a diagnostic mechanism to see the effect of the drug. And then you will need those neuromodulation modalities on the outside to receive that signal from these nanoparticles 
to make a decision on whether the drug is working, whether you need more, and in some way close the loop there for some of these therapies. So I think there is a synergistic effect that can happen both with neuromodulation as well as nanotechnology and drug delivery to improve condition and enhance efficacy. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's go to our last question. This is just a fun one and an easy one. What's your favorite neuroscience-related book that you'd recommend to the audience? It's funny. It's a difficult question. And it's not a difficult question because I've read a ton of neuroscience books, but it's because that I've not read many. You know, I'm a mechanical engineer, and most of my knowledge that I've gained has been through reading papers and by actually hands-on working on projects like clinical studies and all. One of the very first books that I read was a book called Indwelling Neural Implants. It was not a textbook per se. It was more of a collection of chapters in one book. And it was fascinating because it not only highlighted the main challenges in the field of neurotechnology and brain-computer interface, but it also had potential solutions to that. And that was six years back, I think, when I read that book or five years back. And now I see a lot of research being done in that area following some of the things that were proposed in that book. So anyone interested in brain-computer interface and what are the capabilities as well as the challenges and some ways to overcome those, I would definitely recommend reading that book. It's a great recommendation, and I will make sure that I pick it up. We'll add it to the show notes as well. And that's all for today. Gaurav Sharma, thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you. 